Scuba Obsessed, the weekly podcast. We talk about all things scuba diving, from cool new gear to places to dive and scuba the news. Scuba Obsessed, episode 419, is recorded live September 12, 2019. Welcome back to Scoob Obsessed. I'm Darren Jilson coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan where I am starting to see some leaves falling. Joining me this week, we have Mac, the dive mentor. How are you doing today, Mac? I'm doing very well. And like I put in the club newsletter, it's uh, like the middle of September. And if you aren't getting wet, you know, you better get to it because it's going to be hard water pretty soon. Yeah. Yeah. You're going to have to get that chainsaw out and make sure that works before too long. It's hard to say. I love this weather, though. This is like the my my favorite time of the year, weather-wise. It's just beautiful. Uh, just it'd be nice to have just a quick frost, just enough to kill some of the flies and mosquitoes. But other than that, it's going to be pretty good. And speaking of mosquitoes, and a little off topic, did you, you see that we've got uh, the equine influenza? Yes, I did. Yeah, and I and I know one of the guys who who's got it. That's Really? Terrible. Yeah, the uh, tremendous fruit farms. Uh, uh, you know, we we know their family, and it's like that's that's rough. I mean, it's not always a good thing. Well, we had one of our club members got uh, screwed up with a uh, tick. What was it? Month and a half ago. Oh, was it Lyme disease? Or yeah, and oh, wow. uh, the, you took a look at his back, and he was very fortunate. He figured out what it was, got to the doctor, and got treatment. But even so, that was really huge on his back, and it can lead to all sorts of uh, long-term issues. Yeah, yeah, that one that's that's pretty bad. And the problem, a lot of people, they don't know they have it, so they can go a year or so yep. without treatment, and it just hangs on. But uh, they, an aggressive treatment plan early on can make a world of difference. Right. Yeah, so just be aware that stuff's out there, and it can happen. It's not just... For parts of the country which got a little bit more water than we do, but uh, it can happen here. Yeah, mosquitoes, yeah. The, the most dangerous organism ever to populate the planet, as far as we're concerned. Well, how many people does it kill, especially oh, in Africa? You know, I mean, we have quinine now, but uh, when we did the Panama Canal, what used to kill people then? The little mosquitoes, malaria. Did I lose yeah. you, by the so, way? Oh, no, you didn't, you didn't lose me. I had to go look. Oh, well, it's like it's one of the biggest diseases we had here in St. Joe and Benton Harbor back mm -hmm. in the 1860s was and had a different name for it. That I cannot think of, but it's the same thing. It's malaria. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was all uh, North America had huge amounts of malaria. Uh, the most deadly animal is the mosquito. According to World Health Organization, mosquito bites result in the death of more than 1 million people every year. Majority of the deaths are due to malaria. The World Health Organization estimates between 300 and 500 million cases of malaria occur each year. A child dies from malaria every 30 seconds. Wow. Well, I know, as a side note, 
you know, Pearl Harbor, 1941, my uncle was there on Hickam Field, and he did his time on the islands as they hopped around, and what almost killed him was malaria. Yep. 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 They said after that, uh, Bambi, they said, deserves an honorable uh, mention. Uh, Deer collides with more than one and a half million cars a year. They are a band deer. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, well, unless it's in jerky form. That's true. Already treated and tenderized. Yeah, well, front they, bumper of your car. Yeah. Un- unfortunately, I've had that happen a couple times. So, At least you don't have elk. Oh, my God. Yeah. Because the elk goes right through your window because you just break his legs. The body comes to the front window and takes you out. Elk, moose. Yep, biggies. Yeah, yeah, those, those large. You know, as much as I think it'd be cool to see a mammoth, could you imagine running into a woolly mammoth in your car? That would be a bad day. Well, I, I think we've rambled on enough. Let's go ahead and jump right on into the news. Um, and I sent you a few articles. Uh, we tried to record this last week, and we didn't make those the, those articles, so I, I pulled something a little bit more current. Uh, the first one, it says, well, let's do, and and what we're referring to here, I, I should back up a little bit, is that there was a, a tragedy in California in the diving community. Uh, 34, is it 34 people? 33 doomed passengers and one cargo member uh, were killed in a fire on the dive boat. And uh, it's been a, a little bit over a week since that happened, and we're starting to get a little bit more information than we had before. Uh, this one out of the Mercury News says the entire crew was asleep when the blaze started. Uh, as uh, from information from the NTSB, National Traffic Safety Bureau, I think is what that stands for. Absence of night watch is a mar- maritime violation. Sleeping crew members on a sister boat caused a crash in 2008. The entire crew of the Conception was asleep when the deadly fire swept through the diving boat off Santa Barbara coast. Waking up after flames engulfed the cabin in the pre-dawn darkness, September 2nd, too late for rescue passengers, and preliminary federal report released Thursday confirmed. The National Transportation Safety Board uh, released a two-page summary of a preliminary investigation showed that five crew members on deck tried but failed to reach 33 doomed passengers and one crew member engulfed in the flames and smoke. Disaster had already sprawled, uh, not sprawled, had spawned a criminal investigation of widespread grief among several Bay Area families and diving communities as one of the worst maritime disasters in the state's history. Chris Rosaris, a father of three sisters, Angela, Evan, and Nicole, who died on board the Conception, said Thursday's confirmation that the crew members are asleep and the fire broke out was perplexing and horrible. I've been aboard ships, and there's always somebody who's in charge and awake, and sometimes full crews are awake. U.S. Coast Guard said Thursday could not comment on the watch regulations or NTSB's preliminary report, but experts in maritime law and maritime disaster have said the ship should have had at least one crew member on night watch, which is posted regulations seem to affirm. Uh, this particular article, which is worth taking a look at, uh, shows a layout of the vessel because uh, it, it just seems unfathomable that they couldn't get out. But uh, with a modern boat and you've got plush interiors, you've got carpet and all sorts of finishings, 
it doesn't take much of a spark to get everything uh, burning. Um, the NT's report, the initial public step in the investigation is likely to take months involving personnel from NTSB, Coast Guard, FBI, the attorney's office in Los Angeles, as well as state and local officials. The 75-foot conception operated by Truth Aquatics at Santa Barbara was anchored off the Channel Islands for Labor Day weekend diving excursion. The three-level wood and fiberglass custom craft was built in 1981, carried six crew members and 33 passengers. Investigators have not identified the source of the fire, according to the report, but the NTB, NTSB preliminary report pieces together an early narrative. An unidentified crew member who was asleep in the wheelhouse was awakened by a noise in the early morning hours and got up to investigate. That crew member saw the fire at the aft end of the sun deck rising up from the salon compartment below. The crew member alerted other crew members sleeping behind the upper deck wheelhouse and the captain radioed a distress message at 3.14 a.m. to the Coast Guard. Unable to use the aft ladder because of the fire, the crew members jumped down to the main deck, one of them breaking a leg in the process, and tried to access the salon and galley compartment to reach passengers below deck in the bunk room. The only access to passenger sleeping quarters, which was equipped with two locally sounding overhead smoke detectors, was down a ladder well in the forward, starboard corner of the salon or emergency escape hatch on the aft end, which was also exited to the salon. But the salon was fully engulfed by fire at the aft end, report said, in the thick smoke in the forward end. Crew members were unable to open a window at the forward end, and overwhelmed by smoke, they jumped overboard. Two crew members and the captain swam to the stern where they reboarded the vessel. They opened the hatch to the engine room and saw no fire, were flames blocking their access to the aft door of the salon. They launched a small skiff, picked up, the other two crew members from the water and sped to a nearby recreational boat, the Grape Escape. The Conception captain continued raiding for help while the other two crew members returned to search for survivors around the burning hull. Coast Guard and local fire departments respond to the scene at Platts Harbor off Santa Cruz Island, about 25 miles north from Santa Barbara, but the Conception burned to the waterline by morning and sank in about 60 feet of water. The initial summary is based on interviews of the three of the five crew members who told investigators they knew of no existing issues in mechanical electrical systems. The report also states investigators have collected documents from previous inspections of the Conceptions and its sister vessel, Vision. They plan to study similar boats and their alarm systems, evacuation routes, and other safety measures. The Santa Barbara County Sheriff said last week many of the victims appeared to have suffocated from smoke inhalation. Investigators from federal and local agencies have been searching for clues amid the deck, the wreck, which the Thursday was raised from a resting place 65 feet below the surface of Santa Cruz Island. Sheriff Bill Brown said the boat will be lifted onto a barge and taken to an undisclosed secure location. On Wednesday, rescue divers recovered the last body from the wreckage. Brown said all 34 victims have been identified and their families have been notified. All but one have positively identified through DNA, with the remaining victims having been identified through fingerprints. A full identification that victim is expected once the overseas family member submits DNA reference samples, Brown said. May they all rest in peace and their families know that all of us involved in this sad operation continue to hold in our hearts and in our prayers, Brown said. The U.S. Coast Guard offered new safety guidelines, including recommendations to limit onboard charging of cell phones, laptops, and other devices powered by lithium-ion batteries. Federal prosecutors search warrants against Truth Aquatics and also gathered evidence the company's other two leisure boats, Truth Artifacts, filed a preemptive suit shortly after the fire, claiming the company and owners Glenn and Dan Fritzel property, properly maintained, equipped, and staffed the vessel. 
The suit is a common tactic under 19th century maritime law allows ship owners to limit liabilities in future civil actions. But McAmey said the finding that the crew members failed to follow required procedures could lead to criminal charges for the crew and jeopardize any liability protection for the owners. If the customs and procedures of the ships are not followed, the owner and master knew that, then that's a problem as far as whether the limitation will be successful or not. If it's shown that they were negligent and caused the death of these individuals, they could face serious criminal penalties. Uh, the tragedy upheld the sterling reputation Truth Aquatics had earned within the diving community. In my experience, a very professional safety-oriented organization, said Sacramento area scuba instructor Stephen Walsh, uh, who has been a number of diving trips with Truth Aquatics. If they're required to have watch at all times, there's no getting around that. And they go on and they talk about, but this is just uh, certainly such a tragedy. Uh, and the victims were were they aged from sixteen all the way into their sixties. Uh, we actually had a, a local lady on that. Oh, I, I wasn't she was, aware of that. Yeah, I think she was fifty-one. Uh, she lived in California, and she was a diver. And uh, so we have local connections to actually one of those that perished in that fire. Yeah. And I think uh, the gentleman on the, you know, who was looking at the stuff before we started here had some postings that one of the theories now is uh, lithium batteries. Mm -hmm. And the experience I've seen with lithium batteries is very hot fire, really quick and explosive. Yeah. And if that happened below deck, depending on how big the area was and how violent that was, You've got one heck of a lot of spoke real quick, and you're going to fixate and incapacitate people so they really don't have a chance. Yeah. Well, it's such, you know, those lithium-ion batteries are such a hot fire. Uh, it's, it's, it's like the world's best fire starter because it's, it's anything that can burn, it's pretty much going to burn uh, once I get started. So if it's not. You know, if it's if it's a large quantity that can't extinguish itself, and you're in a enclosed space uh, with furnishings that can burn, and when they burn or smolder, make smoke, it's just a bad situation. So we'll have to wait till we got a little bit more information on this, but uh, we're starting to see something coming in, and I'm sure we're going to be hearing about this for the next several years. It'll be interesting to see how that helps things down, you know, mm -hmm. how it helps. Some of the other articles the other guys had been looking at talked about feedback from other places or, or sort of coming in like, well, some of us aren't really trained on blah, blah. Uh, some of us don't necessarily have a fire watch at night. So it'll be interesting to see how that does change. Like fire watch, that's a requirement Yeah, already. Yeah. Now, in the fire watch, is that a requirement based on the vessel size, or is that any vessel? That part passengers? I don't know. I would I would think it has to be based on occupancy, perhaps. Yeah, because I could see if you've got a six pack, you're a captain, and you got a six pack, and you're doing overnight. I mean, would you have to have? Yeah, you know, would you? Would the assumption be that you have to have two crew, and one of them's always watching? I'm I'm not a a, a crew member, official crew member, so I wouldn't know. I haven't been through that sort of training, but I'm I'm kind of curious. And I also wonder how design of the vessel plays in. Because it sounds like the escape route 
even though they did have two routes out, both led into the same area. So if the area that your escape route leads into is on fire, you know, you're, it's not going to help you much. Right. But you're, all, you're also talking a boat. You know, you, you're limited based on size. And when I heard how many people were on us, I, I was wondering how big this boat was. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, now, if it is, you know, if they do find out it's batteries, I wonder if maybe this would lead to changing what people do. I mean, how about charging on the deck? Could they have had some sort of locker on the, you know, the stern of the boat where you'd drop your phones and stuff in and let it charge there? Well, like I'm in the places where you go now have in your outlets at your house. Mm-hmm. A lot of those now are 110 and they'll have USB ports so you can charge your phone or what have you. Oh, yeah. yeah and it's, it'll, not- it'll, it's going to be interesting and it, it it's not a good thing it happened, but hopefully a lot of good things will come out of it. Exactly. Uh, you know, hopefully we can make something positive out of this tragic event. You know, I kind of wonder... Yeah, it would be nice to have learned it without so many deaths or even any deaths. But True, but quite often we don't learn unless it's tragic. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we've got the the Eastland uh, wreck that happened here in the Great Lakes. I mean, that, that uh, probably saved thousands of lives since then just because of that. The Eastland was quite unique in its occurrence. Uh I'm not quite sure what kind of safety items they ever developed because of the Eastland. Um, I may, maybe I miss saying it was. Let's see. What's the one that was found by Harry Zike? I can't remember the name that saved my life right this second. Uh, I'm, I'm, I can't think of it. Key item that came out of that one was running lights. So you can find a boat, red lights, white lights, stern, because if you couldn't tell which way a boat was going and you collided with it, having extra lights of different colors, different, you know, how you have the white on the back, you got your red and your green on your boat. So you can tell, is the boat coming at you, going away from you? Is it on your left, on your right? One of the side effects of that boat that I cannot think of the name of it uh, was Lighting on boats was a requirement, became a requirement. Yeah. I can see the boat as, as yeah. side wheeler, and I cannot think of the name. That's, yeah, that's cause, bad. Yeah, because the Eastland had things that had a full complement of lifeboats, but the passengers failed to notice it. Well, on, on the Eastland, the boat rolled over in the harbor as it was right. tied up to the dock. I mean, she had a yeah. little history of being unstable. Mm-hmm. And she wasn't really overloaded, but everybody was on the top side. And what they hypothesize is if everybody has finally got on the boat, you're not looking at the dock. You're going to the seaward side or the lake side to see what's going on the out, that way. And when everybody shifted over to that one side, that's the way she rolled. Yep. I think that next one you were going to talk about, the guy with the spear gun, that was one lucky son of a gun. Yeah, let me pull that one up. Yeah, this one is, trying to see, was it somewhere in South Africa? Uh, Scuba diver recovering after shooting himself in the face with a spear gun. 
Connie Howell can consider himself a lucky man because not everyone who shoots themselves in the face with a spear gun lives to tell the tale. The incident occurred on Friday when Howell was scuba diving in Scottsboro, south of Durban, with the pastor airlifted the hospital for emergency treatment. Times Live reports that he is now in good spirits, although is fearful when the incident first happened. I just thought, let me stay awake. Howell told the Sunday Tribune that he reached for the gun when the wave came and the trigger went off. At first, he thought he had been hit in the face, but realized what happened when he couldn't turn his head. I screamed for people to help me while I walked backwards towards the shore. The 48-year-old was pulled from the water by lifeguards on duty who helped stabilize his condition before emergency services took over. Thankful, Connie made a swift recovery after having the spear removed. When you consider where the spear entered, he was lucky. Those in the scene tried to cut the spear with a bolt cutter before eventually using an angle grinder to cut it shorter. According to the maxillofacial and oral surgeon, Dr. Karian Eamon Lyor, who operated on Connie, there was just a minor bone fracture with the spear missing the vitals. And for those who can't see the photo, it looks like the spear is coming in below his jaw and coming out just past the temple on the opposite side of his head. Like how it missed his optics, his eyes. It's, yeah, the picture is very freaky. Yeah. And so if I understand, I've read two or three articles on this. The waves, he had set the, the spear gun down. He was trying to balance himself with the waves and either is trying to grab the spear gun so it wouldn't wash away or in the process of bracing himself, he touched it. It wasn't really clear, but it shot and released. And in that moment, it's, it speared him. And that's very hard to happen when you look at how long the spear gun and the spear is, because normally you can't be in a position when you're holding it that it could possibly, you could possibly shoot yourself. Well, I'm looking at that first photo, and it's him, you know, having the hand over his face. Right. But that's, I mean, it's got to be a meter and a half, two meters long. That's a six-foot-long spear. Yeah, two meters. Yeah, it's, a, it's ridiculous. Uh, so how he could have reached it, 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 there had to have been more to it, like he had... He had snagged it on something that then released it. Right, because if you grab, it's like the hunter who gets shot by a shotgun because he's over the fence. He grabs the barrel. He's pulling it towards him. Yeah. And then the trigger catches on a, a stick or a pebble or oh, whatever gosh, and yeah. go boom. So if he had his hands on the top part of the spear gun and right. that trigger somehow got pulled, because I don't know if he's got a safety on his, uh, Bingo. And it's, I mean, just like that, it's done. Yeah. Wow. That is, that is unbelievable. So we wish him a, a swift recovery. Hopefully he's doing better. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that is, that is, that is a rough one. And then uh, this is a, a dive site I've never been to, but I, I was hoping someday to, to be able to make it down there, and it may be too late. Do-Run Company filed suit against Bonterra Mine. Do-Run Company filed a petition in St. Francis County Court, oh, Circuit Court, Wednesday against West End Diving 
Bonterra Incorporated, the company which operates the Bonterra mine. Petition was filed the same day previous suit between the two parties was dismissed at Doe Run's request. In the newly filed lawsuit petition, Doe Run alleges that West End Diving had breached its contract between the two companies by failing to pay rent and by failing to maintain the underground mineral, underground mineral estate, the mine, taking all actions necessary to protect members of the public who visited location. So if you're not familiar, Bonterra Mine is an old lead mine in Missouri. Uh, that had flooded and been used uh, by divers. There's a number of courses, uh, courses, when I say courses, I mean paths you can take to the mine that are, are led by uh, dive guides. Uh, you know, they call them trails. Trails, is that what it's called? Yep. Yeah. And you have, you have long uh, steps you have to go down into the mine, carry your gear, and then you get to go do a dive. Uh, Doe Run is the owner of the underground mine, which is located beneath the Bonterra mine at 185 Park Avenue West and Diving, and its predecessor occupied the mine. Pursuant to the terms of written lease, originally dated in May 26, 1976. So, we're, you know, we're talking a little over 40 years. According to petition, Section 1 of the lease requires West and Diving to pay as rent for the demised premise a sum equivalent to 10% of the total gross admission receipts received during the term of the lease and any renewal hereover said to be rent to be paid monthly. The lease further states that West End Diving shall pay Doe Run a minimum of $500 per year for each year. So my understanding is that it's 10% of your gross receipts and if for some reason you have nothing then it has to be at least 500 and to me, that sounds very, very reasonable. Well, it's, it's if, if 19... I knew if they were going to charge 500 per year, I could find enough guys that we could definitely do the minimum. Right. But this is 1976 <laughs> prices when they set the lease. It just sounds like it was never renegotiated or anything else. And I'm sure there were many years where 10% was much more than that 500. I would think so. And I think some of the benefit was that you had somebody on site maintaining it and it it went from being a liability or something you have to manage to a revenue stream and you would hope that that would cover the taxes on it. And then should lead, because my understanding is that uh, in the 70s with removing lead from gasoline, there was a much, and paint, there was a much reduced need for lead. So it just made mining lead unviable at the scale that Bonterra was running. The petition alleges that West End Diving has failed to pay rent to Doe Run since approximately January 2006, which would be, what, 12, at least 12 years ago. And now unpaid rent is due and owned in the amount known only to West End Diving as monthly rents are based upon percentage of total gross admission receipts. The petition alleges West End Diving has not reported mission receipts to Doe Run since January 2006. Petition states the amount owed to Doe Run by West End Diving is no less than 500 for each of the years from 2006 to 2019. The written list as amended and extended expired in terms on October 26, 2006, which at the time West End Diving became holdover tenant at will with the consent of Doe Run on a month-to-month basis. During its tenancy at will, the party's relationship remained governed by the terms of the written lease as amended. Last month on July 18th, Doe Run sent West End Diving a letter giving it one month's written notice that Doe Run would terminate West End's Diving's 
month-to-month tenancy effective August 19th, according to the petition. According to the petition, West End Diving, although, although having acknowledged receiving Doe Run's July letter terminating its month-to-month tenancy, refused to vacate the premises and return the mine to Doe Run, which the mining company says has been entitled to possess since August 20th. With this newly filed petition, Doe Run is seeking judgment in the court on three counts. Court Run requests the court grant judgment for the rent owed by West End Diving to be paid. Doe Run is also requesting immediate possession of the property for costs and expenses incurred in the matter, as well as any other relief deemed just and proper under the circumstances be paid by the defendant. In count two, Doe Run asks the court grant them judgment and double the value of monthly rents that are due and may accrue while this court action is pending. Doe Run is also requesting payment for the late fee and the company's attorney fee to be paid. In count three, the petition states that West End Diving Material breached the lease with Doe Run. It was negligent by failing to maintain the mine and take all necessary actions to protect the public that visited the mine. Specifically mentioned in count three is West End Diving failure to maintain the property at the mine that led to an irregular caving in or sinking of land on the surface estate above the mine, which Doe Run has expended substantial sums investigating and seeking to repair or remedy. Doe Run further states a claim that investigation is continuing and further remedial efforts may be required. The last stated to court count three is that the wet, the result of West End's diving breach of the lease, Doe Run has suffered damages no less than $25,000. Doe Run has asked for the comp- compensatory damages for the company's cost and expenses and for such other relief deemed just and proper under the circumstances. According to court record, a summons was delivered to West End Diving on Thursday, and a hearing is set to trial date scheduled for October 2nd before Associate Circuit Court Judge Joseph Jeff Jr. I mean, that's a sad thing. You hate to see a situation get to this point. Um, but you got to, I sort of blame Doe Run meaning the owners, because why would you let a situation like that exist for, you know, 14 years? Right. That should have been nipped in the bud right away. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, Give a, you know, a couple of years grace period, maybe, but damn. Well, and you should have contracts that state when you're doing some sort of variance. I have a feeling that a lot of this was kind of handshakes and verbal agreements and discussions. Uh, is, did they mention, because it looks like the diving concession changed hands. Yeah, uh, we used to go there back in the 70s and 80s and even, and as I recollect, it has changed at least three times that I recollect. Now, whether or not one person from a group continued over, you know what I'm saying? So right. you've had some commonality, but I believe it has changed the same as those who would provide uh, diver training, mm-hmm. because a lot of times you're going. A lot of guys would go there during the winter. A great place to do some good training, uh, even though the majority of it is not totally enclosed. There is sections of the trails. Uh, when you went there, you've been there or not? No, I have not been there. Okay, I've been on 17 of their different trails. When you went there, you had to go through mandatory to go through. At our time, the first three, you had to go in sequence. And even though there are sections, you know, they say you can basically go to the surface. There are sections during that path where you can't. And if you get claustrophobic going through a tunnel, 
all bets are off. <laughs> right. Yeah, you you know? can't get the surface. You can't get the surface. So Right. There are places it, where you would have difficulty with that. So it's it's like a cavern slash cave diving in certain sections. Right. I mean, there are sections where there's no immediate up. You got to go through the thing to go up, to, yeah. you know, to get out of the tunnel and then go up. But I'm, but I'm guessing the distance they felt wasn't extreme enough to require a, a cave certification. Well, generally on that, you've got only one way to go. You've got the guy in the front, and you couldn't take lights. You had a, yeah. a guide in the front, one in trail. You're in the middle, and you got to go. One would hope you'd have enough sense that you could buddy up if you ran out of air, which you shouldn't. Uh, but it's a great place. I, I always enjoyed it. Jacques Cousteau went there, did mm -hmm. a wonderful video session. Uh, I used to have a video of that video. And uh, we always had a good darn time. Yeah. So, what, like you said, I'm guessing is that there was a handoff. Um, at some point in the handoff, somebody probably said, you know, had asked the owners saying, hey, this is a little tough. I'm going to need a little bit. But it's not clear as to why they would have let that go on so long. No, I do know that had I owned that place, if you put a not even an elevator, but a equipment lift from the top, which they already have. There's a hole up there to let stuff go down, up and down, and mm -hmm. did nothing more than haul people's gear up and down. They would have increased the participation of older divers tremendously. Right. I mean, we've talked about that ourselves at the club. Is it's, you know, the, there are people who won't do certain beach and shore dives because the distance from the parking lot to the water is just too far. You don't want to carry it. Now, when you figure how far down that is and how far you're hauling gear, uh, it's you're just you're limiting your audience, right? And and we're talking when I was not as old as I am now, <laughs> and it was still a pain in the butt to go up carrying your weight belt and your BC. At least there, you could always rent the tanks down there, and you always rented the biggest tank because you didn't want to be the guy who breathed like a big dog and had to come up. Yeah. Because uh, from uh, from you and uh, Rich Senowick and a few others who've been down there, it uh, I can hear, remember the story where they would at certain points would do uh, pressure checks, and if you weren't at a certain point, then you had to do the swimmer's stream back while everybody else got yep. to continue on. Yep. I mean, I always enjoyed it and I liked it for wetsuit. I, I wouldn't wear a dry suit back then because it was much more of a drag for that kind of business. But the temperature was, was really nice. Visibility was awesome. Um, mm -hmm. Back in those days, you could even go on scooter tours. And if they weren't busy, you didn't have to necessarily do all the other stuff you had to do when there was a crowd. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, if you had one one lead guy who worked there, and there's three you you know experienced scooter guys, and you've been on ten, fifteen trails, you know, they pretty much figured you know what the hell you're doing, and you could do a lot of good stuff. Yeah, well, that sounds like fun. Well, I hope it they was. get this worked out and that they get somebody there. I'm guessing we may be out of luck for the 2019, 2020 yeah. dive season, but hopefully. It continues to be an operating dive concession, but it could be that its days are done and that nobody is willing to invest the uh, funds. Because I've heard mixed in stories on uh, it's not in a heavily populated area, so there's not a lot of 
uh, places to stay and some of the places where you could stay weren't, you know, hadn't been updated in years. Yeah, when we were there, uh, they did have, you know, it's like uh, houses you could stay at. Like a bunkhouse or? Uh, not that. I'm trying to think of the word where you go. Nowadays, it's avant-garde. You oh, go there, you have breakfast. breakfast. Yeah, bed and breakfast. Yeah. It was a very nice place. I mean, huge bedroom. Okay. Lady would come down, the kid would play the piano, a really <laughs> nice supper, you know, good breakfast. It's like, and the prices were tremendously reasonable. Uh I, again, I all my experiences were so. If they get an escalator or an elevator, yeah. <laughs> so I don't have to haul my gear. I'll go again. Well, that would be basic service. I mean, because I mean, it's always easy to backseat drive in somebody's business. But honestly, how how bad would it be to have some sort of tram system to haul gear up and down? Well, if that or able-bodied Gunga, you know, right? Gunga well, did haul my when, gear, please. I'll pay you. Yeah, well, right. That's what I'm saying is that wouldn't you pay somebody ten bucks to go haul your gear up and down? I would. Absolutely. I mean, like, like, like in the in the times of Uber and Deal Dash <laughs> and other services, uh, it seems like that would be common thing to think of. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, sometimes the with especially in diving, where we kind of get stuck in our our times and our assumptions, and things just haven't necessarily updated and modified but hopefully they get this turned turned around because it sounds it, it's it's a place that had been on my short list i remember when my the company i worked for got bought uh, by a missouri company i was a little disappointed that the the distance to dive the drive to my company in missouri was the same time as to dive drive to there and the distance from my company missouri to Bonterra was the same distance as it was for me to drive there. So they were each seven hours. So it didn't save me any time. It was just better to go on, take a, a long weekend and go down there, and it just never happened. See, so you don't want to wait and say, I'll do it eventually, because it might not always be there. Yep. And, um, talk about the sewer stuff, aren't you? Is that what's next? There's nothing like a good sewer story. Well, it is. It's really interesting, especially when you're the one swimming in that. When yeah. you take a look at, oh, wait a minute, that's that's by us. See, what, what's this river called? St. Joseph <laughs> River? <laughs> Where we like to grub. Uh, so it says from January 2018 through May 2019, 6.7 billion gallons of diluted and partially treated sewage were spilled in the Michigan waters. So not all St. Joe. Uh, the combined sewer overflows, known affectionately as CSOs, uh, are the result of sewer systems that drain both stormwater runoff and human industrial waste. Eighty municipalities in Michigan have such systems known as combined sewer systems, which is almost, they say 80 have a result. I would. I think it would be easier to say who don't, because separating stormwater from sewer was something that didn't happen, except for very modern systems done in the last twenty, thirty years, and I'm sure none of those existed in Michigan. <laughs> Most times, combined sewer systems send all the local treatment water to the plant, 
but during heavy rain events, which only happen, what, probably twice a month, can be overwhelmed <laughs> and mix the stormwater and raw and partially treated sewage spills in the waterway. So if you envision this waste treatment plant, which is you drive by almost every modern industrial city in the United States has a waste treatment plant. They have these round tanks with digesters. Uh, they'll have arms that go in and they're turning around trying to keep it all aerated because your idea is you're trying to get some sort of bacteria process going and then they go through from one tank to another tank, another tank, and they're slowly filtering stuff out. So you have your your larger screens which are taken, you know, the plastic bags and logs and other things that go into it and you're slowly trying to filter it down uh, mostly by digesting and you're trying to get water that is at least as clean or cleaner than the river in which it goes into and most systems are designed to match the population and what the estimated usage is and they do a good job provided you don't add to it by rain because the storm sewers go in the same spot so what happens is it's kind of like uh, your stomach on Thanksgiving Day. Everything that comes in must go out, so it's eventually going to find its way, and that happens to be in a river. So the map, the interactive map, uh, which is on michiganradio.org, shows bodies affected by these uh, combined sewer overflow events, and they include the Black River, Detroit River, Grand River, Manistique River, Red Cedar, Rogue, St. Joseph River, which is our local river, and Tap Rock Rivers. Uh, the data from the map came from the Michigan Department of Environment and Great Lakes and Energy. Uh, and they show the billions of gallons. So luckily, the St. Joseph River, I would say, is in the less than a billion gallons bubble. Well, it was 13, it was 13,338,000 gallons. That's still a heck of a lot. I, it is if you're swimming in it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That is not a baby Ruth that you're seeing right there. Yeah. Uh, that is right up river, uh, approximately one mile from where we do our turkey dive every year. Yeah. So most of them uh, were coming from the St. Joseph. In the St. Joseph River, it was a St. Joseph wastewater treatment plant that did it, which local politics, you've got Benton Harbor and you've got St. Joe. And the St. Joe is the fancy side. So it was the fancy people pooping in the river. Uh, <laughs> so you had that. And then if you go upriver, which I'm surprised, because when I saw St. Joseph River, I was going to blame South Bend. The South Bend, Indiana is much bigger. So you have South Bend and Elkhart are both on that river, and their population is over a million people between those two locations. So to think that St. Joe was probably, what, a 50,000? population was causing the overflow at a higher rate than the rest of the river. Now, this is reported. Each waste treatment system is required by law to report. So we're assuming that it was properly reported. Well, the the issue that we have from that aspect for how much pollution we we did, is that 13 million was basically from the river. But like you're saying, it starts in Michigan. It goes down to Indiana South Bend area, Elkhart comes back up, and yeah. that section wasn't even addressed in the sewage aspect. Yeah, anytime so this is you a go, Michigan report, right? So when I dive there in still the St. Joe River in South Bend, when you if I, you know the Wickham Bridge, for example, where I recover, yeah. recovered some items, if you go 
300 yards upstream of that, you have a launch, you have some docking, and you have several big signs that say danger. Whenever you have heavy rains, Elbola, it, it, it lists a whole little litany of items of why you should not be playing in the water during high rain periods because it goes right into the river there. So yeah, a lot I'm, of what we get basically goes around, comes in, comes over the paper dam there at the French paper dam. That's where we're going to get it, and it's from South Bend. It's not addressed here. Yeah, I'm 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 doing a search on combined sewer overflows in Indiana. Well, yeah, you but, noticed after last year, you know where we go and we use that one pipe that goes onto the river as a launch point. Have you yeah. noticed a big sign that's right at the top of the berm now? Yeah, you'd mentioned that they had uh, changed the wording yeah. a little bit. <laughs> uh, yeah, they checked it really good. Like uh, this could be a hazardous place to be diving. Uh, it's a outflow for possible sewage. Yeah. Yeah. So, so they didn't, so they didn't do the, uh, the, you shall die with the skull and crossbones and the skeleton floating <laughs> in the water. Yeah. They didn't do that, but the words are pretty strong. And yeah. obviously since they know that's happening and that pipe is there, it's pretty blatant after last year's flood, they had to put that up because they had to decon that whole section where the play, uh, playground is uh -huh. for contaminants just from the okay. flood. Yeah. Okay. Well, he, here, here, Mac, I'm going to paste this in the chat room. This will make you feel much better. Yeah, probably this is not. An article from March, 2018, <laughs> and it's showing South Bend smart sewers. Uh, so take a look at that water, that, that, that photo. I'm trying to find it. Uh, where did you post it at? I posted it in live show chat. Uh, I got to go figure out where that is. Mine says continue. Oh, okay. I got to go. Oh, you. Yeah, I'm curious to see what that says now. Yeah, I'm familiar with that place. Yeah, but let's I, I have dove in those in those brown areas. I have settlement basins. I've dove in those. But when I dove in those, I had a nice environmental suit with a helmet. <laughs> the person who got the short end of that stick was my tender. <laughs> the guy because I came off. up, you're deconning me with Clorox and all sorts of wonderful things, and that poor sucker is <laughs> basically handling fresh manure. <laughs> yeah. Well, well the, the the photo, and this is from March 4th, 2018. Yeah. And if you can if if you can manage uh, visualize a river that goes by a waste treatment plant, but you can't tell where the river stops and the plant starts. So <laughs> we had we had flooding yeah. back then. I mean, that was a, they called it a hundred year flood, which I really think is a 20 year flood, but uh, it had overflowed the bank and there is no solution for that. Well, in fact, the whole town is a sewer at that point. So uh, you'd have had to build the dike around the whole darn thing. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah, so, so I can't, you can't hold that against any town in those situations. And it's just the nature of it. And that's flooding is a tremendous hardship on the community and what it does. And we all felt it that year, all up and down the river. Uh, well, the Mississippi, and, when it floods, oh my gosh. every, yeah. every year, someplace gets devastated by yeah. floods. Yeah. So that's, what's going on. But this, but these systems, uh, South Bend and Elkhart were sued several years ago. I don't know if the suits are currently active because they basically said, yeah, we need to separate the storm sewer from the others 
the other, the waste sewer, but we're not doing it. So they were being sued by whatever agencies, and I don't know what the outcome of that was. But uh, in South Bend, they say the city's waste treatment plant was briefly shut down. And this is back again in March 2018. The plant's peak capacity is 77 million gallons per day. Uh, And they said that the river has to drop quite a bit uh, from a flood stage to be able to process that. I was looking at some of the comments from that. So that's happened in 16, 17, 18. (laughs) So it seemed to be... Something that happens every darn year. Yeah, that was a good article there. Yeah. Well, the other reason I thought this was interesting: what the, what happened just before Labor Day? They closed Silver Beach, and why did they oh, say yeah. why did they close Silver Beach? E. coli. Okay. Yeah. Where do you think that might have come from? Hmm. Probably the river. Well, it, for people who don't understand the geography, is you've got the river comes out through the pier. And you've probably seen photos of the pier because it's a beautiful raised catwalk uh, lighthouse. And the south side of the pier entering into Lake Michigan is Silver Beach. The north side's to Scornia. So anything that comes out in the river comes out to the pier, gets sucked in, and hits the beach. So, And quite, quite mo- most often the predominant current flow is to the left out of the pier, which rotates around to... Silver Beach. Yeah, every time I fly over that way, I take pictures because you will see the outflow and to know where the current's going that day. Yeah, and it goes to the left a heck of a lot. I I love those early spring photos when you have the high water current coming out of the river and you see you know Lake Michigan's nice and blue, and then you have these brown ribbons from all the rivers, and that's the the natural way things go. Even yeah. without sewer systems, you've got. You know, you've got your flood season and sediments are being pushed through. And a lot of this has been managed by we've got dams on the river. So Mm -hmm. last week when I went, it was not brown. It was freaking black. Yeah. Good article, though. But be aware where you're diving. And if they got those kind of signs, you might want to double check what you're going to be doing. Right. And and just think about (sighs) would, would you drink the water? Of course you wouldn't. But you're spitting your regulator out in the water sometimes, or you're doing certain drills and and things, and that's making it back in your mouth. Well, all right, we're at Merrimont, okay? Yes. What happens when you go downstream a little bit, where I've taken you on numerous occasions? You, you mean huge that little concrete hole drive, in the banks? Yeah. yeah, where you could drive your car through that pipe? Yeah, I, I thought those were homes for muskrats. Yeah, that goes right to the waterworks right there. Or the settlement tanks are. Yeah, I, I, I and and most people who dive there <laughs> realize that because you pass by the entrance to the waste treatment plant, so you you kind of realize that's going in the river somewhere. You should be anyway. <laughs> and I have to say that unless I'm really following a trail of bottles, I don't pass that concrete spot. <laughs> uh, There's got to be gold or some treasure or something because that's. Uh, well, there's three boats in that juncture there, and yep. that last time you got out there, that's a nice little section that I'd like to get back now after that big flood yep. where all the sediment, sediment should be gone. It will be interesting to see what those wrecks are because mm-hmm. those were big and they were old. 
So I'm anxious to get back out there. But I'd like a boat ride down because that more I'd like the boat ride back. Yeah, I, yeah, I, 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 yeah. We just need to bug our uh, nice friend who's got a bunch of boats who likes to go in the river. So um, we'll get Jim back out there again. You got Jim and you got John and yep, a, a few others. But speaking of boats, we've got this other boat that was uh, found floating off Ireland's coast. Uh, amazingly, I guess it caused a national stir. This is stir. This is from September 5th, 2019 in the pilotonline.com. Crew members from Western Ireland's Doolin Ferry Company were headed to Innes Orr, a small island in Galloway Bay on Monday afternoon. They spotted something bright orange floating in the water. First, I had a feeling of fear, wondering if there's people in difficulty because we could only see about a meter of the bow sticking up out of the water. Tom Knoll, one of the crew members, said Thursday in an email to Virginian Pilot. Then once we got closer, we could see the amount of growth on it. We knew it had been in the water a long time. That was only a danger to navigation. Upon investigation, Noel and the rest of the Doolin Express crew found the boat covered in goose barnacles. They'd clearly been in the water for a while. And along with local fishing boat, towed the boat to the beach at Innes Orr, where many islanders had helped pull it ashore. A day later, Doolin Ferry Company, which is based in Ireland's famed Cliffs of Moor, posted the account on Facebook. At that point, they guessed the boat was a U.S. Coast Guard rescue boat. We're hoping for any details on what brought it so far, and the post blew up online. We couldn't have predicted the interest in the public, and there has been this boat. Liam O'Brien, the ferry company's owner, later said in a news release, there's a lot of growth on it. It clearly been in the water a long time. We already have a shipwreck on the island, so everyone's saying this is a new one. It's definitely one of the most unusual things that we have discovered, and it's drawing a lot of tourists to the area. News outlets across Ireland picked up on the mystery. Thousands of people shared the theories on social media. Was it a drug-running boat masquerading as a law enforcement? Was it an American military vessel used to spy on the Irish? Within a day, the answer came. A representative from Silver Ships Incorporated, an Alabama-based shipbuilding company, confirmed that it manufactured the boat in 2015 for the U.S. Navy. The ferries company's Soban Nolan said in an email, the high-speed maneuverable surface target can be used remotely and is used as a target practice by the Naval. We believe the boat originated in Norfolk, Virginia. Doolin Ferries wrote on its website, it's likely to have been lost during a training exercise and it remained in the water drifting until it ended up in the water close to Innes Orr. How cool is that? More than 3,400 miles of drifting. It turns out it's true. Timothy Bole, a spokesman for the Navy Air Warfa Warcraft Center Aircraft Division, said Thursday the vessels lost during a missile test and evaluation event about 75 miles off the coast of Norfolk last September. After realizing the target was lost, the Atlantic Target Maritime Operations Team searched for five hours but couldn't find it, notified the Coast Guard of the potential navigation hazard. It is shocking the boat made it across the Atlantic. Not very Bully said because the, the test vessels are foam-filled so they don't sink. The Navy folks hadn't heard of the recent discovery until coming across the story on Wednesday in Facebook. Our people are not surprised it made it to Ireland. You notice how clean the bottom of the boat is and all the materials on the, on the structure? Uh-huh. And I still look at those two engines and wonder, the picture of where it come ashore, I don't see those engines. Oh, really? When it gets ashore, the engines are just... Go take a look. At, oh, yeah. You know, the, the bottoms are clean pretty much. 
And I don't see any engines on them. Somebody scrapped those off early on because there's one where it's on shore and there's engines. Mm-hmm. And then there's others where it's been towed someplace else and they're not there. So you're right because looking at these <laughs> engines, go because what would you say the length of this boat is? This is about a 19, 20 foot. Probably. Easy. That's yeah, a fast boat. Right. And those engines, I bet you each one of those, gosh, I'm, tr- I'm trying to think of the size. They're, they're horsepower? They're well over 100, 150 each, I would think. It's yeah, like the one they, the Coasties have by us. Yes. The one they mount the 50 caliber on that if you go and they're wondering why are you diving around the bridge, the railroad yeah. bridge, they will come over and talk to you. Yeah, because these these engine th- this is a large truck engine that sized. When I say large truck, I mean like pickup truck. Uh, but you know, they're they're large six cylinders typically. I think in this size of engine, and you probably have fifteen thousand in engine at least in that. We have a couple of shekels, that's for sure. Yeah, they had some money. There was some money tied up in that. And this boat was not meant to sink. I mean, it was like for target practice, but they knew that it would get beat up. But the idea was that you would grab it, patch whatever you had to, and bring it back. Because that's, I mean, if you wanted to sink, you wouldn't have filled that with foam. Uh, it's like a, you know, Zodiac style, but all foam filled. So interesting. I, I As we talked about, you know, the, the U.S. Ireland spy ring is, really got to be going looking for that Guinness recipe Uh, high waters bring pieces of Great Lakes shipwreck ashore a little bit closer to home Um, rising waters in the Great Lakes which we're at fairly high levels currently combined with powerful storms are revealing pieces of history along the shorelines Great Lakes during powerful storms have been churning up sand and revealing long buried shipwrecks primarily century-old remains of wooden ships. The Michigan Maritime archaeologist Wayne Lasardi has said sighting wooden pieces of shipwrecks has been common in recent weeks along Thunder Bay and Alpena and other communities dotting the Lake Huron shoreline as high water washes artifacts ashore. We're getting a little bit of everything, Lasardi said, just a lot of individual planks and frames. For example, but in Muskegon early this spring, we see an entire 130-foot shipwreck that was exposed for the first time in like 50 years. It has happened in Indiana as well, Lasardi said. Lake Huron had a 45-foot section of ribs in an old ship buried under a sand dune was exposed. Uh, you know what's funny about that statement? Well, he's talked about Indiana, but then he mentioned Lake Huron, which has... Yeah, that's why I was with... curious, like, excuse me, <laughs> wrong well, play. Ohio, maybe. You know... I don't think Lasardi said it that way. I think that was an edit by the author. Because <laughs> Indiana has, because Indiana's in south of Lake Michigan, and they have had some. It's been in the local papers here. But uh, that was like two paragraphs combined to one. We'll blame the editors. That's whose fault it is. Vast majority of shipwrecks, I think, that occurred in Great Lakes probably happened in the late 19th century, he said. Lasardi said the summer shoreline erosion is giving archaeologists an opportunity to draw, photograph, measure, and study the artifacts. He said they have to act fast because they might not be exposed for very long. This is a great window of opportunity because you don't know if you're going to go out there tomorrow. They may be completely buried again. So you really have to react right now. So this isn't the high waters washing them on shore. 
This is the high waters eroding sand and exposing wrecks that had been buried by the sand. Yeah. So, yeah, it's sometimes it's confusing, but that's what's going on. But they, but the the head, the title of the article says, "Bringing pieces ashore." They've already, they've always been on the shore, or they eroded from ashore up or down the coast and now have gone back. So it's this season's rubble that is showing up being eroded from the sand. And then in the Coral Sea, they're discovering shipwrecks. September marks the 80th anniversary to start of the Second World War. Australian searchers believe they have made an exciting discovery in the Coral Sea Marine Park, the wreck of the U.S. oil tanker SSS Neosho, Neosho, N-E-O-S-H-O, No Show. It's an American vessel. We should name it something we can pronounce. Uh, sunk defending Australia in the Battle of the Coral Sea. James Cook University team led by Dr. Robin Beeman according, uh, aboard the CSIRO research vessel investigator in collaboration with the Department of the Environment and Energy found the possible wreck near the tanker's last reported position the Coral Sea nearly three kilometers deep. It's not far from the aircraft carrier of the USS Lexington which was sank in the same battle in 1942 and only discovered last year. Following the discovery, a memorial services held a number of wreaths laid in remembrance of the 182 crew who died as a result of the conflict, including one wreath provided by Special Envoy to the Great Barrier Reef, Han Warren Etchen, MP. The Battle of the Coral Sea was a significant movement in our heritage. The Nisho was hit several times and struck by Japanese aircraft as the U.S. worked with Australia to defend against Japanese advance. The department will now work with the U.S. Navy Historical and Heritage Command and research to study archaeological and environmental values of those Coral Sea sites. The project will align with themes of the upcoming U.N. Decade of Ocean Science 2021 and 2030 and will shed further light on significant movement in Australia and U.S. history. Australia and United States entered the Memorandum of, Un- of Agreement in 2010 to promote cooperation in underwater cultural heritage, resource management, maritime archaeological research, education, and resource protection efforts in the Pacific. And they go on with some more PR stuff. So this is a press release by the Australian government, Department of Environment and Energy. So the park is one of 58 uh, Australian marine parks, and the marine park contains over 45 known ships. So quite a few pieces down there. The USS Osprey ship spell has been handed to the U.S. after a mysterious return. This was reported in the BBC. The vessel sank in June 1944, the loss of six men. It hit a mine south of the Isle of Wight. Uh, pictures of the bell appeared online early this year, prompting an investigation and subsequently anonymously handed in. The acting receiver of the wreck said it was a poignant part of our history. The USS Osprey was taking part in minesweeping operations in the south coast of England. On the 5th of June, 1944, as part of Operation Overlord, the mine blew a large hole in the vessel's engine room. The fire broke out and the ship had to be abandoned 45 minutes later. Crew members killed are believed to have been the first casualty of D-Day operations. U.S. authorities contacted the U.K. Coast Guard and the pictures of the ship bell appeared on the Internet. The investigation was launched by the Maritime 
Coast Guard agency when it was established that Bell had not been reported to the receiver of the wreck. Acting receiver Heloise Warner said the agency put word about that it was searching for the Bell and subsequently left anonymously in an undisclosed location last month. It's absolutely fantastic. Such a poignant part of the history is back in our possessions, she added. The Bell was checked and confirmed to be genuine as historic England conservators and is set to be returned to the U.S. Navy. The site of the USS Osprey wreck is not protected, but as with any shipwreck, artifacts taken from it should be legally have been reported to the receiver of the wreck. Now, isn't this a little contrary to what we've been hearing, is that the military vessels always remain property of the country that they were from? Well, aircraft in the Great Lakes belong to the service. Right, uh, but- but even Admiralty military vessels. Law, it's changed a lot. Yeah. It, it depends on who you want to talk to at what time and who's How in much office. gold's on it? <laughs> and what worth it? What, what can they get out of it? Because you got Spain claiming, you know, wrecks from 1600s in Florida. Well, we've already so given. So what's the difference than that and this one in 1944? And we've already given the Griffin ownership to France. So whoever finds it is going to have to negotiate with France for it. But again, it's it's relative. I understand the aspect about it uh, considered a gravesite, a war memorial, if it has bodies on it. You know, but by the same token, um, Titanic had a lot of bodies on it. Right. So is that a memorial also? Is it, I mean, people who died on it are just as dead as people who died on a military vessel. Yeah, I, uh, I don't know. I, I'm... It's, it's, I don't know if it was ever clear cut, but it seems less clear cut today than it's ever been. So you're not going to make anybody happy, really. No. But it was interesting how, uh, because cause I can imagine somebody took it off. We're bragging about it. And we, we didn't cover it in an article this week, but we had the same thing happened here. Uh, I mean, it wasn't a, a wreck that I'm aware of with, with uh, bodies on it, but we had one of our first wrecks we dive on every season is the, is in Diamond Lake. What's that? The South Bend? Yep. South Bend. So it's a little steamboat, which is kind of like a wide canoe. Uh, and it had a steam engine in it. And then at some point, I, I can't remember the story behind it. Did somebody intentionally sink it? Was that what the rumor was? Okay, first of all, where it's at now is not where it was 20 years Correct. ago. Yeah. Uh, I, I can't think. Tyson? Tyson? Yeah. I think they, they, group, they, used to, they, they removed owned. it and put it in a better place so it would be available for divers to, to, to work with. Yeah. If you look at the old pictures, and I've got a couple of old ones that I saw again posted where it was up on shore, like they always did. They abandoned them. What are you going to do with it? Right. And quite often they'll just drag it offshore and let it sink because now it places for the fish to con- you know, congregate. Yep. And I dove out there a couple of years ago with uh, Kevin, and we took a look at the, uh, at the boiler. And Kevin at that time was trying to determine, was it the same one from that ship? Yeah. Uh, you know, we've had pictures of it and what have you. If you go ashore near where the uh, diver, where we dive it is, friend of mine owns property there so i'm down looking in his jungle of a backyard and it's like what is this boiler from and if you look at the old pictures of where the boat was part of the stuff that's buried in his backyard near the shoreline 
could very possibly be part of the boiler assembly to that rack. Uh huh. So that could be a boiler from a different vessel. That part I don't know. Because you can I, see it's a it's a it's a genuine boiler because you can see the round shape and you got the heat exchanger. I didn't see the tube sheets, but yeah, I it, or maybe I've imagined it, but it's been a few years since I've dove on it. But I can remember seeing because it's kind of split open, and I guess it could be have been a power plant on shore because you would have you could have had something like that. They could have had a you know some sort of steam plant for a wood mill or something. Mm-hmm. So uh, not, not, yeah, this very similar steam engine construction from that time period. But anyway, this. This is in the bottom of the lake. We've been diving out it as the South Bend. And somebody decided that, wow, what a cool project. We'll bring this trash up from the bottom of Diamond Lake, and we'll put it next to the True Value Hardware or Ace Hardware and uh, show it off. And as you would expect, a bunch of people got riled up on Facebook, and the rumor has it that it's going to be returned, that the person who brought it up didn't realize what you know the extent of it or so, but that also begs the question, though, that if you're out there diving in any of the lakes mm-hmm. and you find rowboats, are they significant and they should be protected? Meaning right. they were generally sunk because they were leaky. People didn't want them. They put the trash in them, put them on the ice, let them sink. Right. Yeah. Yeah. What? What's? Is it the size? Is it the condition? I mean, for us, it was a fun dive. It's usually before, you know, there's still... Lo- Ice on Lake Michigan, we're getting an early dive in. At least it's something in a local inland lake that you can see. And when but, they first dove it this year, they broke ice with the boats to get to it. Yeah. So it, it's, a, it's a fun dive. So it meant something to us because we would dive on it. It's not necessarily historically significant. You're not going to take it out of the water and try and restore it or preserve it because what it would have done is it would have sat there uh, probably dried out, rusted, and in four years been a pile of flakes. Yeah. Did you ever dive in the vicinity of that boiler that you're talking about? Because it's nowhere near the boat. It, it's a distance. There used to be a line yeah. between the boat and the boiler, and you, you'd see it about every other time you'd dive the wreck. Uh, yeah, so I, I'm pretty sure it's the one I had seen. Uh, if it's the one I'm thinking about, and I think it is, it's nowhere near the boat. There is no line because that would be a long, long, long. Maybe I saw something else because you. Yeah. Yeah. But it's still, like you said, it begs your question. Is that covered under the antiquities? Well, Since right. You, and it was physically moved by other people. Blah, blah. You know, what do you do? Well, well, right. It got, everything got moved together just to make it interesting. If it was a barrel. You know, oil drum, DDT or something. Would that, <laughs> is, that, is, that, is that different? You know, where do we draw the line on on some of these things? Yeah, you know, I was disappointed when I saw it brought up because I'm like, oh, crap, that's something I like to, to dive on and take a look at. But, uh, and I'm and I'm sure there was all sorts of people. You had some people going great for cleaning it up and you had people screaming at him for destroying our history. So... A history most of the people didn't know about anyway. No, nobody knew it was in there. Uh, But speaking of things, uh, history and underwater, this one's from uh, Star News Online. Uh, And it's a collection of photos, underwater archaeological branch for Fisher. 
uh, State Archaeological Office, along with other functions, preserve and monitor shipwreck off the state's 30 coastal counties. Uh, they have nine photos. The uh, first one is artifacts recovered from modern Greece shipwreck found off Fort Fisher in 1962. Uh, they're being held in wet storage at the archaeological branch. So these are, the, the thing is, they're large stock tanks. If you've gone to a feed store and get one of the largest stock tanks, which is what you put water in for your cows or pigs, that's what they've got this in. They've got it lined with plastic and I'm betting they've got some sort of agent in there to help stabilize the condition of it. Um, but some just some interesting photos. So this is uh, North Carolina. I'm just also looking at the second set of pictures where they've got the tubs and artifacts yep. or items in it. Looking at any of the items there, what significant historical value do you think those will reveal? I'm going to say the shape of a rock and what a hole looks like. That's the I'm only just thing curious. I say. Yeah. I, I'm looking at the again. What is the return on the investment for those items? I like the anchor. I like the anchor too, but you notice it's not in a bath. No, that's that's one that's been out for a while, and and that's uh, a Woodstock. Yep. So is that the is, original Woodstock, or did they add it just to make a nice display? I have been to many places along the coast, uh, especially up by the Blue River Bridge, and I have seen some really great Woodstock anchors that the Woodstock has deteriorated because, though it was on display, they didn't have funds to preserve it and or to preserve it every year and coat it, that they have, in fact, they've eroded and become brittle, fall apart, and you no longer have the original Woodstock. Yeah. If you're going to bring it up and you're going to claim it for a hundred years, you ought to take care of it. You, it should last above the water at least as much as it was under the water. Yeah. If you can't commit to that, then just put it back. Uh, and then they show some of their gear. I see some full face masks, some tote tubs. Uh, they're diving wetsuits in North Carolina. And then how about that photo seven? They say modern Greece wreck. So what does modern Greece wreck mean? Is that modern times? It still has a cut out of scissors in it. Uh, okay, that's wonderful. Because we don't know what scissors look like from 100 years ago. Looks like uh, that. <laughs> yeah, it looks like that. <laughs> now, I don't see any alien footprints in there. Now that made it interesting. Yeah, see the figure eight chain to your left? under his wrist by his watch, Ooh. look down Ooh, to the that, left. Now that is interesting. I like that. That would, uh, I would say that'd be early 1800s or older. Yeah, that's old fashioned stuff. It's not, I mean, I've seen really nice figure eight chain, but that's unusual to find that. Yeah. I wonder if they've got a mixture of stuff in these tanks. I would think so. At least something, because if that's salt water or brackish water. You've got some kind of preservative in it. Well, and, and I would like to know, are these tanks just fresh water and they're they're drawing the salt out, or do they have other additives in it? You know, are they treating the preservation? Yeah. Well, I know the wood would be treated different than metal. Yeah. Somebody needs to help paint their archaeological branch buildings. Boy, those are rough looking. I know back in the day when you might find a dead eye or something, it usually got dunked in a uh, 
five-gallon pail of paraffin or liquid glycol, yeah. and yeah. that would displace the water, and it actually preserved, the, you know, the, the mm -hmm. dead eye. Yeah. And yeah, it inhibited the, further erosion of it or, or rotting. Yeah, because yeah, if you take it out of the water and it just, the water goes someplace else, you've got these open cells that had something in them, and they're going to dry up collapse. and gets brittle. And things crack, and it just looks, crumbles. So, yeah. So, I mean, some interesting photos. Nice to see what they're doing. Because in 100 years, then this will be a archaeological review. Boy, that desk in the, in the, in the first photo, off on the right, that's an antique. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's got to be 1940s. Yeah, if that was underwater, it'd be very valuable. Yeah, it would be. Throw it in the river, find it next year, and you can, you got something else out. Wow. Yeah. Now that's an interesting thing. And then it's been at least three months since we've heard somebody claim this. So it must be true. Human bones found in 1963 could be related to the LaSalle's Griffin shipwreck. And I'm sure it is. Yeah. Could human bones that Den Tenniswood has kept in a box in his closet in the home of St. Clair Shores, Michigan, bones he found in the cave in the Soggy Straits near the lighthouse, be connected to the ship the Le Griffin, which sank in 1679? It was August 1963. Mr. Tenniswood began. I went with two other people. I wanted to show them the G near the Misagi Lighthouse where the cave was and where the skeletons had reportedly been moved around. It was a shallow limestone ledge where we found what we thought were two upper arm bones, said Mr. Tenniswood, along with his wife Venus, who owns a camp on the west end of Mon the Manitoulin. Miss, Mr. Tenniswood explained, I took the human bones of my Dr. Norton and asked him what they were. He said they were both part of the upper arm and were matching set belonging to a small man or woman. With this in hand, he took the light box that had been held his 8-millimeter camera and put two bones side by side, each 18 inches apart. With styrofoam on the bottom and top, the box and the bones have remained in his closet at his home ever since. They've never been out of the box. I don't know what to do with them. Today, advances in carbon dating and DNA testing, scientists would be able to determine how old the bones are and the nationality of the person they belong to, said Mr. Tenniswood. The skeletons found in the cave could possibly be from someone of the time the griffin over 300 years ago. If there are human bones over 300 years ago, then those of a French person may be tied to the griffin and it would have been part of the original six skeletons that were found in the cave. Mr. Tenniswood noted he saw the wreck of the griffin book by Chris Cole and Joan Frost, uh, Forsberg, which she said her husband agreed that is an excellent book. We heard they were going to make a presentation in Dan's day in Kagawan on their book. We decided we need to introduce ourselves. Windsor, Ontario, where they live, is only 15 minutes away from where we live in Michigan. We knew we needed to talk to them. My wife, Venus, and I went to the presentation in Kagawan and Miss Fosberg and Mr. Cole. In our story in Finding the Bones, he was very interested, said Mr. Tenniswood. I told him we didn't have the resources to do testing. That would need to be to come out of some type of conclusion on the bones, but he said he could do this for me on a loan basis. So I gave my contact information. We are here for the summer, but when we get back home, I'll present one of the found bones to him on a loan basis to get the testing done. 
The article in the Manitoulin Record dated August 1963. The headlines bone found in Meldrum Bay reported in part a couple of amateur skin divers, Steve Popovich and Don Tenniswood of Warren, Michigan, claimed to have found old bones in a cave near Meldrum Bay. The two have been relatives in the island, are spending the week's vacation here, originally planning to search for some proof of the sunk griffin off Meldrum Bay. The story says they were found in the water too deep to skin dive. They started to search the shore for archaeological signs. Mr. Tenniswood came upon the cave located between the two G's near the Misagi Lighthouse, which apparently had not been discovered before. The cave obviously was a bear den. When he climbed in the cave, he had found a pair of large bones looking quite old, according to the judgment of hunters. They didn't look like beer bo- deer bones or any other animal that had bone size. I find that we checked professional archaeologists. Many of the bones came from the crew of the Griffin that sank there some 300 years ago, the Ark said. And then they go on and on, and they got some good details. Uh, and I've heard this story quite a bit. So is this just rounding it back to the source of the story in 1962, these two divers finding the, going into the cave and finding the bones? Or it could be the bones of the survivors or the people who got killed by the alien craft that was sunk by an F-86 in 1958 in that same area. I oh, mean, really? yeah, yeah, like how many times they said could be, possibly, maybe, probable, you know, yeah. truth in advertising. It would be interesting. I mean, it's it's fun to talk about, and I, I think it's certainly worth a test. Unfortunately, I'm going to guess if these are genuine bones in normal air for 300 years, DNA is going to be very limited. I'm just curious that, you know, if you and I were out there and we found human bones and uh, we pretty much thought they were human bones, <laughs> do you think that the government, meaning the cops and stuff, would appreciate us keeping those in a cardboard box in our closet as opposed to turning them in? Well, it seems like we talked about an article a little, a little longer ago, and it was at a similar time where somebody had found bones, reported them, as found, the Mounties came down, looked at them, and then they ba- they got buried in a cemetery. So it'd be yep. interesting for somebody, you know, what this begs for somebody to do is to kind of coordinate all these stories together. Because individually, they're like all these conspiracy shows you see on TV where it's interesting and a bit of information. And if you've got the storyline, it kind of proves your point, or it doesn't even prove your point, but it kind of adds information that you could stretch to prove your point but you know is it really well i, I want to know if the dna and the carbon dating prove yep. something now if dan said it let's find out what you just said yeah. guy yeah carbon dating will give you an age uh dna uh i'm kind of skeptical but hopefully they're in good enough condition for it but yeah it's worth a test Well, and how about this for some potentially cool scuba gear? Uh, This one was in Motorboat and Yachting Magazine, which nothing says economical like talking about yachts. Uh, Power Ray Submarine Drone is a lazy man scuba alternative, according to the title. Um, And creative writing on this article, which I don't blame him. That's what you do in this type of magazine. But he says it's a submersible drone. 
But unlike the flying variety, this one uh, links via 40-meter cable that hooks in your smartphone or tablet recording 4K Ultra HD images to its SD card. Uh, and here's a little tip to people. Whenever they give you detail information such as 4K Ultra HD, that is a press release. <laughs> To its SD card while streaming live data at 1080p in a palm of your hand. It takes 12 megapixel photos. Incredibly, you dive to 30 meters with its built-in headlight come in handy. Uh, says it's a lazy man's ultimate way to go scuba diving. But at 1,699 pounds, I'm not sure I'm going to be buying one. <laughs> and that's way, honestly, that's way overpriced. You don't need to spend, what's that, about 2,000 U.S. dollars? couple of shuckles. Yeah. On that, it is sexy looking. I mean, it looks like an iMac married a tuna. Uh, so it's it's pretty unique. And then was this one or another article where it looked like you could take apart, uh, you know, they're trying to convince you you could do it for other things. You know, take, take the camera off and use it some other way. I was just scrolling down as you were talking. I like that jet surfboard, a petrol-powered 35-knot surfboard. Now, that's pretty freaking cool. One a toy you could almost afford. Yeah. Yeah, we're going to start seeing more of that. Is this uh, battery-powered devices come in, and these battery packs get denser and less cost? It just adds to the things you can do. Because if you look at the, the scooters that used to use in the 70s and 80s Mac. Those are all battery-powered, weren't they? Yeah, yeah. So that's a technology that worked then, and you figure that batteries now are 10 times at least more powerful and lighter, what you can do with them. Yeah, and, and ours were not gel cell. Yeah, and, and I'm kind of puzzled why we haven't seen more of those. Is it just there's not enough money in it? Uh, we see wacky type stuff, but just take the old scooters and improve them. Come on. And uh, I don't quite have $12 million, but uh, Mac, if you do, there's this Kansas mansion that might come be something you might want. 18-acre uh, property hit, sits on a hidden network of scuba tunnels. Um, they were specifically designed for scuba diving. It is the most expensive listing in the state. Date. The listing was first reported by the Wall Street Journal. Tunnels were carved in the property, allowed the owner to dive in an outdoor pond. Assessed through the series of grottos and pop-up holes, the tunnels led the pond, which the owners transformed their own diving paradise of exotic fish, statues, and fake fossils. The father-daughter team, Gary Hozak and Katie Casey of Crown Realty, are the listing agents in the property just outside Kansas City, Kansas. Built in 1992, the home is known as the Spirit of Avalon, inspired by the English legend King Arthur. It is indeed a rather castle-like, built of stone with stained glass windows, wooden doors, decorated with custom dragon carvings. The owner, Lynn Shaw, and her husband, who passed away unexpectedly two years ago, spent many of the years together adding to the house. They built the tunnels on a whim as part of a dream of being able to scuba dive in their pond while they constructed multiple waterfalls. Tallest measuring 35 feet, a two-story library was added to the house in 2002. <clears throat> the property has six bedrooms, several professional kitchens, two-story office, a library. In addition to pond, there's a swimming pond, a sauna, 
heated garage, outdoor wet bar. According to journals, Shaw is selling the house to downsize after her husband's death. Whoever buys this, call me up, invite me over. I'm there. Because <laughs> this is this is like one of my insane dreams if I win the lottery or something similar. A big, big lottery. Yeah. I mean, 18, you know, $12 million. That's, you know, that's, that's pretty salty. And, you know, when, when you see something like this and it's listed for 12 million, that is what they're hoping to sell it for. That's not what they had into it. I bet you they had a lot more money in that than what they're selling it for. Cause people aren't paying you for those tunnels. There's very few crazy people like us who would love that. It is definitely unique. It's artistic. It's really interesting. I would probably have to have a lot of dehumidifiers because oh, yeah. you're going to, it's going to be a little damp in there, I would think, if you didn't have that. But it is gorgeous, so, isn't it? Oh, it's very well done, but very eclectic, kind of yeah. eccentric. Exactly my type of place. <laughs> the only thing I didn't see is an armor, you know, coat of armor. They just didn't show. You know, he had one. He must. I mean, the lions are a nice touch. Oh, the, I couldn't the lion. figure. Yeah, of the entryway. What's at the top of that beam there? I couldn't tell if that's a big frog. I, or it's a, either a frog oh, or an urn. I just it is. It's an urn with uh, figures on it. I just enhanced it. Okay, this, that's awesome. It is. It's it. It's super cool. Why couldn't the guy have invited us over? If you live in a mansion that has scuba tunnels, you need to call us. We'll come investigate. Yeah. We'll play around. Because you do something like this. They said they did it on a whim, but what fun is having something like this and not sharing it? Well, you know, you don't know. They might have. It just wasn't with us. <laughs> right. Well, it doesn't matter if it wasn't with us. Uh, but, uh, yeah. they Statues, yeah. fake fossils, exotic fish. Sounds cool. Yeah, what this sounds like is here, here's somebody who had a really nice business, sold it off to some pre-dot-com guy, and uh, was able to enjoy the money. Good for them. I mean, who's got dolphins in their swimming pool? Yeah. Well, that one picture is awesome. And you know, any any house that has the ceilings painted as sky is just cool. Because that's not like, you you don't hire a painter and say, paint my ceilings. You know, and they charge you the $3,000 to paint your ceilings. This is a guy who paints clouds, and he charges you like you painted Sistine Chapel. Well, yeah, and look at the right-hand side with that whole stained glass. Yeah. If it was in my house, flies would poop all over that, and it wouldn't look good. Uh, well, very nice. So if you happen to have one of these places and you want to share it with us, send us an email at show at com. You can follow us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash scuba obsessed or on Twitter at scuba obsessed. And of course, if you've got millions of dollars and you're listening to the program, you certainly want to, to assist the show because we are getting that time of the year where the hosting companies want their money. Uh, $3 or more gets you early access to the show notes and it would, we would certainly appreciate it and we would come and dive in your pond. So. Wow, so that was scuba the news. We really worked that out, and this one, this one was uh, marinating for a while. Uh, so I understand that there was a little bit of diving going on in the last couple of weeks. We've had some beautiful weather as we get to the end of summer and Labor Day. Uh, Mac, what kind of diving did you get in? 
Uh, let's see. What did I do? I can't remember. Did we talk about doing the river already? Doing the drift dive? Uh, I think we did talk about the drift dive, but I understand that there was a little search and recovery going on. Well, yeah, that too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was uh, Jim got a call the other day. Well, talking about diving, probably the best dive was uh, when they were out there on the big lake. I think they were going to go to the Hume, but the weather was not conducive to doing that. So I believe they went to the Ironsides. And the pictures, they had at least 80-foot visibility on the Ironsides. Oh, that is amazing. It was freaking awesome. Uh, so everybody who went on that trip, had a very good time and probably more something that I'm really encouraged by is that now the Havana and the Rockaway both have official buoys on them. Uh, thanks to the efforts of the Southwestern Michigan underwater preserve, Kevin Ailes, who did a tremendous job of getting a lot yeah. of volunteers and a lot of the volunteers were muddies to go yeah. out there, help place the grids, fill them full of iron set up the anchor buoy systems, and then get them installed. Yeah, and I don't think uh, – it's it's hard to appreciate the amount of work that goes that has gone into this. I mean, this is a culmination of – the preserve's been in existence for 20 years. This is one of the things the preserve wanted to do, and it's just now that it's been able to be done. So we've got two wrecks, uh, you know, getting the permitting process, getting the divers trained to where they're properly certified – and uh, with the state and all the paperwork, and then actually placing them on the wrecks, getting them on. Uh, you know, a year ago, it didn't look like this was going to be able to happen, and it's done. Well, one of the, I mean, you've got to have the people, but you still got to have the money. And once yeah. you got the money, it came together. Yep. It's so just that, unfortunate it took so long to do that. Yep. And the preserve, uh, dive S W U P. Oh, goodness, I I do this every episode. I can't remember. I'm gonna have to type it in. So it's dive S W M U P dot com is the website. Uh, and I need to get I need to get the link on how to donate on there. Uh, but we are looking for funds as a member of the preserve board. Uh, to to do more wrecks. We've got several more wrecks. We've got the tugboat off of Saugatuck uh, that needs to be done. Uh, we've got the Ann Arbor 5, which is in deep water, which is a which is a nice, unique wreck to dive on. Those are the next two, I believe, we've got on the list. And there's more. So the more money we get, the more wrecks we, we buoy. Putting buoys on the wrecks gets charter boat operators and dive boats to dive on them. Because nobody wants to be in a charter boat dragging on a wreck and damaging it as a as a hook to it. So these this buoy program is a worthwhile thing if you want to be have the opportunity to dive on these wrecks. So preserve could use your support. So contact the preserve if you want to donate. And I got to get some links on there to help people do that. Yeah, another aspect from that is uh, we did have several participants go to the Underwater Salvage and Preserve Strategic Planning Workshop, which was in Lansing a couple of weeks ago. And uh, the feedback from that was highly encouraging. And uh, they've actually asked for more feedback, and they will have additional workshops like that. 
And one of the items that they were looking at was funding possibilities may be enhanced. And funding enhancement, I think there's something like 185 projects they want to buoy. And that is a lot of work. But the state is actually working to help us. So instead of trying to have to spend 500 bucks for a permit for each rec, they tried to make a concurrent proposal that the one $500 bill would apply to all 185. Right. That's a significant savings, meaning the money that you would normally have to spend for that, you can use towards buoy in the wrecks. Yeah. And if you have that many known wrecks with known buoys, you are going to enhance dive operations to the max. Yeah. And, and, and what's, going, what's going on here is that these are the same permitting process that if I own a commercial operation that needs to have a buoy on whatever op item, I've got to pay that money, and that's what the, the prices are set to. But when those rules were written and envisioned, they never thought that there would be preserved. So the way the law was written, they didn't have any choice but to try and charge the preserves, and the preserves don't have money. Uh, so what they've done is they've, by combining all these wrecks under one common preserve permit, they've helped save these preserves the money, and it, it actually makes it feasible. Because it's you know, you, a shallow wreck, and when I say shallow wreck, I'm saying 60 feet, 20 meters. That's going to be $2,000 to put a wreck on that, depending on where you are uh, in the preserve. Is it going to be a major uh travel route for larger vessels if it is it could be even more if it's deeper it's even more so you can get into the four to do a wreck and that's not including the time of volunteers that get out there dive on the wrecks uh, and maintain and, them every year yeah you got to put, put them out in, in the spring take them out you got to take them out and uh i was talking to kevin and it looks like my home will be the winter home for the buoys so just remember to take the batteries out of the light yeah, we'll we'll have to do that. Nothing worse than having corroded batteries all slime the inside of your buoy light. So, uh, and that's these buoys are large. They when you're in a boat at a distance, they look small, but they're they're large buoys. They've got lights in them for navigation, so that they're going to be able to see them. Uh, they should be showing up on radar. They should be reflective. Now the lights don't. You won't see the lights until dusk and dark time. Yeah, and you can find them from the air. I flew over the Havana one last week, and they were already being used as turning pylons for sailboats. <laughs> That's, I'm, I'm watching this boat, and I think, what the heck are they doing? Then I, they turned and made a 90, and then so I sort of flew around and looked, and it's like, oh, there's Havana buoy. Yeah, so there you go. So they're, they're serving a, a useful purpose in extension of what we thought was possible. So, you know, kudos to Kevin. And everybody involved in the uh, the preserve and volunteers and and there's preserves all up and down Michigan. You've got the we're in the South Michigan Southwest Michigan Preserve. You get the West Michigan Preserve, and they go all the way around. And then you've got even got the Federal Preserve there and uh, wherever that place is called. <laughs> yeah. And as we talk about, we're talking about other activities going on. Anybody who's local, don't forget that Saturday is the Wolf's Annual Flea Market. That's downtown. That's Saturday the 14th. And uh, I've had good luck at something, finding something every year that I want. 
from that place. And the prices were freaking dirt cheap. It, that's, that is probably one of the best values. It's nice that Wolf's does that. Uh, it gives the opportunity for people to clean out their garages and stuff. And, and what happens is it's usually people who have decided, I haven't dove in 20 years. I need to get it out. Let me put it on display. And there's boat stuff and there's things. And, you know, you may have to take the, take the tank to get hydroed, but it's worth taking a peek. And I'm sure even if you're not in our area, news but wherever you're at you're at the time of the year you know top stop in your dive shop or marina i'm sure they have similar programs yeah oh goodness do you have a safety story of the week that you'd like to well cover? you know it's already an hour and 14 i don't want to chop this down but i do have one it's called a quick guide to keeping your cool uh, with a desire to explore the unknown divers put their heads underwater in some very unnatural environments and while relying on a single unit of life equipment, it's no surprise that divers occasionally lose their cool. Divers who become startled or face difficult problems underwater can be overwhelmed by fear or anxiety and behave wildly and without thinking. They panic. A, a good example would be you didn't get out when you had 500 pounds of air in the tank. And you're diving around the riverbank. And about the time you think, okay, I need to get out because I'm low on air, you get snagged by a freaking tree limb. Okay, now you got a problem because you know you're low on air. You could have, you could actually panic. So sometimes panic is completely obvious. Divers may thrash at the surface, stare at you with wide eyes, spit out the regulators, or fail to communicate. Whenever divers are panicking at the surface or deep underwater, an intervention can prevent them from injuring or hurting themselves. Rescue divers and dive professionals are generally trained to recognize panic and intervene. But all divers can take measures to prevent panic before they enter the water. Now, most people do not openly admit their fears before diving. Egos and unwillingness to stop somebody else's dive, you know, lead many to an uncomfortable dive because they weren't prepared for that. Uncomfortable divers can enter the water despite their uneasy feelings. Key item, always talk to your buddy before diving. Make sure both of you are comfortable with the dive plan. Discussing your concerns may allay a person's fears and make their dive better and safer. Now, if you notice your buddy is being unusually talkative or quiet, avoiding certain subjects, compulsively checking their gear, repeating questions, or acting abnormally strange before a dive, continue your communications. Stay positive, reassuring, but don't dismiss fears or pressure a hesitant, you know, that may pressure a hesitant diver to dive. Now, after entering the water, if you see your buddy struggling with equipment, giving him proper signals, suddenly losing buoyancy control or breathing rapidly, assist them as soon as you're able. Early assist, such as receding a low-pressure inflator hose on a buoyancy compensator, securing a tangled-up octopus regulator can help reassure your buddy. Just stopping to think and breathe can make a big difference for a diver who is uncomfortable. It creates a window of time to solve a problem, relax a diver, preventing their discomfort from escalating to panic. Now, if you frequently do become nervous underwater, think about what causes your anxiety and plan how to resolve it. 
For example, if clearing your mask is the pain of your existence, practice in the pool till it no longer scares you. If you're doing it in the warm water, don't forget to do it in cold water because it's a little different. If you worry about entanglement, make sure you have an easy access knife holder and a spare. Take a backup. If you fear not being able to find the anchor line when you're doing a wreck dive and you don't want to make a free ascent, especially in low visibility, carry and practice using a submersible bag and a finger reel. It gives you positive contact to the surface. Tension on the line, you can come up at a very gentle rate and you know where the surface is. If your concern is suddenly not having air, begin carrying an extra small air tank, a pony bottle, and a regulator for just that case in a moment. If you have air, you got time. You can't plan for everything, so if you or a buddy experience discomfort underwater, remember to stop, think, act in accordance with your training to prevent panic. Take your time. If the dive becomes overwhelming, ascend to a shallower, more controlled environment, or end your dive as safely and quickly as possible. Keep your cool, prevent panic, make all your dives injury and accident free. Very good. Yeah, we got one for next week, too. It's going to be called How Not to Be That Guy or Gal on a Dive Boat. That that is a very good one. I was looking at that, and those are all good points. I look forward to hearing that one. Well, do you have anything you want to plug before we head out of here? I think there is a an event at the – is it the Morton House next one? No, it's going to be at the um, Benton Harbor Regional Airport. Uh, Benton Harbor Regional Airport. Right. It's going to be the Great Navy Birds of Lake Michigan. It's by uh, Taurus Lysenko of AT&T Recovery, and he's the gentleman who has recovered 40-odd aircraft from Lake Michigan, lost off the two aircraft carriers, that the Wolverine and the Sable, that were in Lake Michigan. He is also the individual discovered and is in active uh, negotiations to get permission to raise the UC-97, which is a German U-boat sunk in Lake Michigan. And uh, several other activities that he's been engaged in, among them shipwrecks. Uh, He has found a local one of significant history to the Morton House Museum in that it looks to be the Chikora. And looking at the side scans from that, it sure does look like it It meets the criteria of a single stack. The size of it looks good. The length of it and the side scan was pretty darn good. Wow, that is pretty convincing. I, you're you're the first person I've heard that has been able to see the side scan and and actually verify it. So, and uh, it, it's quite interesting. So, uh, if you're you know have the opportunity, it's going to be again um, September 28th. That's a Saturday, Ben Harbor Regional Airport. Starts at seven o'clock. He's going to be there around six uh, to do signing of his book. If you're so inclined. Uh, they will be for sale. I will have some available for people who would like it. It is absolutely a great book. Great. Um, so you're going to enjoy it. So, so how much is the book? You know, if you were to go to the event and buy it, is well, if you if you go any place else, they're around twenty nine dollars. Uh, but I'm going to be able to offer them at a, a nice little discount. Okay. So 
if I get them in time. They Their first printing actually sold out in three days. Wow. That is amazing. I'm, that, that's got to be great for him. Oh, well, yeah. It, yeah, I can tell he hates. Yeah, sure. As an independent publisher, you have to be concerned with, you know, can you sell out what your investment is and to be able to sell out so quick? Well, yeah. I think it'd be better as if I had printed them, but <laughs> <laughs> maybe so, I'll have to do my pitch when I see him. Yeah, How, that's going to be a good one. And and you visit, you went to his uh, uh I've been to several of his events. He did have one again last It was in Berrien Springs at yeah, the and, Courthouse Museum. And you, and you can't get any closer than my hometown than Berrien Springs because that's where I'm from. Yep. Uh, and he he has a unique way of presenting it. He basically puts the uh, slideshow, uh, some of which is video, uh, video snippets, on the screen, and then he just talks, and you can listen to what he says and watch what's going on the screen. And it's basically two stories. And it's funny how you can watch one, which is the aircraft, what they look like, how they're being brought up. And he gives you the evolution of how he started when he was a kid going out diving, him and a friend, in a boat, recovered an airplane, found out that they could sell it, and people would pay money for this rusty thing. <laughs> and it's like, well, darn, let's continue with this. And yeah. it, it evolved, and it's like, he's not making any money off of this, and he's had some really good, um, what, what's the word for when you have somebody who likes what you're doing and helps pay for things? Pay, patron? Yes, that's a good one. Like the gentleman who made McDonald's famous. Oh, what's his name? Uh, Cock? Yes. And the history of why he's invested in it is interesting because it's military pilots. And they're looking at preserving history of, again, I hate that, you know, they say the great generation, but that's what it was. It was the greatest generation. And that's what we've got in the lake. So yeah. he goes through that evolution. He talks about the the um, interesting facts of who really owns the German U-boat that we sank in Lake Michigan in 1921. And that's interesting if you don't know the history of it. So yeah. you're watching the pictures. He's talking. And what he really likes is he likes you to say, hey, wait a minute. What's that picture about? And then, he, you know, that way active involvement makes it much better. Yeah. yeah. So, so it's I- unique. It, it's a different style. I think you'll enjoy it. And I'm sorry I missed it. I was knee-deep in house projects, which hopefully I get done before too long. Uh, but it sounds like a great presentation. I'm I'm going to make one of them before this is done. Great right. and, books. And you're talking about local dives. I did get into the river with Jim the other day. It was a recovery. A gentleman on a boat was on the fantail. And the the history of it is he knew he didn't want to lose his ring, so he took it off, put it on the side of the boat near the aft end, away from the water, turned around and smacked it, and off and went into the river. (laughs) Yeah, because I saw the post where Jim was like, oh, I don't feel like doing this by myself. Who wants to go and get it? And it. You you snatched up the opportunity and went out there and it's got it. all I I like to dive, but I like to have somebody who knows what the hell they're well, doing and tend. It's always great to have somebody with you, and that that's a thing with diving. And I'm hoping that's what we're getting this across to the program that diving is a spo- social activity, and we want everybody to get together and to go and could 
to help and contribute and get out there and do some diving. Well, the interesting thing is I'm going back because you're there doing the job. And then when you finish one, somebody says, did you know that Granny was over here and she has these really expensive trifocals that she dropped off her boat three weeks ago? Uh. Could you go over and look for that? And the place that we're diving, the barn that's right up on shore is 110 years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, the man where he lost his ring was extremely lucky because I found it in a nice flat spot. Everywhere else has holes, and you cannot believe the amount of crap and junk and debris in that section of water. Well, if nobody but, like you has been out there. Well, it's when you start finding this object that looks like a head encased in stuff. And then you find a tarp and it's got ropes around it. And then you find (laughs) the ropes are connected to blocks. You go, do I really want to bring this squishy object up? We call that the Al Capone special. And then I'm going and I'm picking stuff up and it's like, these are freaking bones. And it's like, you know, so I pick up a couple of bones and I, bring up and say, would you guys look at these and see if this is human? And then I go back down and you know, run right into a fishing pole because it's going to stab you in the face. So I get that out of my way for a minute. And it's like, you just can't believe the amount of trash down there. So and the visibility black... was great. It was four inches of, of, yeah. of visibility. Well, well, here's the thing is that there's no Mac up there. So nobody's gone through and cleaned all this stuff up. Yeah, it, it, it was very, it was a, fun and yeah. by the way the river is getting chillier Ooh, so yeah we're, we're hitting in the downward slide you know, yeah i had grubbing proper. gloves and i needed to have my wet tooth gloves yeah get wet people it's september uh, yeah I, I i i've got my boss at work has retired so i'm starting to pick his stuff up and i'm like you know what i could retire too <laughs> and go with play in the river all the time but it's not to be yet. I'm going to only work till I'm 80. <laughs> <laughs> well, then you'll have that 11.8 million and buy that. Million. Yeah. 11.8 million in a wheelchair and I can't use it. Then no thanks. So that's a trick is how do you time your retirement for the point where you can use it, but you still have enough money to make it to the end. Well, that's what I like about Bob and, and Maggie. Oh God! He's retired, and he's going and traveling when he can. They have had some fantastic trips up to, to Alaska, and this last one was also fantastic. And it's like pictures. a victory. It's like a victory lap. You know, like yeah, you worked hard all your life. You did all the stuff for other people. Now you get to enjoy it. I'm glad he's enjoying it, and he's doing it the right way. Yep. Go get it, Bob and Maggie. Uh, we love that you share. We can live vicariously through you. Yes. <laughs> until we can get the opportunity to do it ourselves. And on that note, I know I've talked about Patreon before, but I think this joke, considering that we've just passed September 11th, which everybody in the U.S. knows what that means, uh, I wouldn't be able to tell this joke without the supporters that we've got. So are you ready? Ever ready. Well, I was strolling around the harbor this morning. It was about 11 a.m. I noticed that a terrorist had slipped from the bridge and fell into the water. He's struggling to stay afloat because all the explosives he was carrying, but it, I didn't get the help. He surely would have drowned. 
being a responsible citizen, I abide by the law and the land and require that you help those in distress. I notified the police, the Coast Guard, the Immigration Office, and even the Fire Department. I want to make sure that he got all the support he deserved. It's now about 4 p.m., and the, the terrorist appears to have drowned. None of the authorities have responded. You know, I'm starting to think that those four stamps I put on the envelope are being wasted. Uh, yeah. That's a little bit of a crawler. Yeah, you can't do that if you're sponsor supported. So, yeah, we certainly appreciate you. Happy September 12th. Uh, until next time, go out there and get what? And be safe. <laughs> <laughs>